Welcome to the Cold Brew Podcast. It is December 3rd. I am David Gasper, joined by co-host Matt Carroll. We are the editors at ReviewingTheBrew.com, and in today's episode of the Cold Brew Podcast, we are going to discuss the happenings of the recently passed non-tender deadline and what it means for the rest of the Brewers' offseason. And joining us for that discussion is none other than fellow New Berlin native, by the way, Adam McAlvey. Brewers beat writer for MLB.com. Adam, thanks for joining us, man. How you doing? I'm good. I like that New Berlin has a huge population of baseball writers because our Phillies yeah. guy, Todd Zalecki, is a New Berlin guy. Really? Yeah, so we have one fifteenth of MLB.com's beat writers <laughs> hail from New Berlin. Let's go. I, Perfect. Yeah. Were, were, you a New, were you a New Berlin Eisenhower or New Berlin West guy? Eisenhower. Ah, I was yeah. a West guy. Okay, so. and Zolecki was uh, pious. Oh, so um, interesting. Yeah, so okay, we you know we got them all covered, which is good. Yeah, perfect. So um, naturally, a lot of stuff happened yesterday with with the non-tender deadline, and the Brewers made you know a bunch of moves, but none bigger and none more surprising than. Corey Knable all of a sudden getting traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers. It had been reported by numerous people that Knable was going to get non-tendered. And then when the Brewers made the official announcements, Knable wasn't on the non-tender tweet. And then all of a sudden, a minute later, they're like, he's been traded to the Dodgers. And everyone's like, <laughs> wait a minute, what? So what happened here, Adam? What's the story with, with Corey Knable? Well, I think he was likely going to be a non-tender and the expectation probably was that he would be and that's about uh you know risk right he just didn't have a full he he was hurt by probably more than anyone by the pandemic shortened season because there was no place to put him in a competitive atmosphere to pitch coming back from tommy john so he had to do it in the big leagues which it, it didn't it obviously didn't work um, and I just don't think there was enough track record to know whether those final couple of appearances at the end where he had the velo again, they weren't sure enough of what he was going to be in order to commit. Uh, well, it would have been probably five, one, two, five, five point one, two, five million again to bring him back. Um, you know, it's, it's non-guaranteed, but once you get to opening day, that's guaranteed money. And I just think there was an unease based on what, you know, the brewers are going to say that payroll is very tight. There was an unease about committing that money to a guy that you just can't be sure of. So I think it was looking all day like it was going to be a non-tender. Uh, that was everyone's expectation. And then David Stern said this kind of came up at the last minute. And credit the Dodgers. I mean, for them, $5 million is, you know, not, <laughs> Chump not a change. big deal. Chump yeah. change, right? So they can take a flyer. Uh, they're one of the teams that can take a flyer on a guy like this. And if it doesn't work out, um, you're out five million dollars and it doesn't you know impact you big picture so it's it's sort of uh you know you you take a gamble on a guy and hope he pays off and look those last six appearances i think it was when he came back were great um and we talked to Corey canaval last night it was he here's how he put it he said the the early part of the big league season was kind of like his rehab assignment and he got into some bad habits and he needed those two weeks on the injured list to kind of like hit the reset button, let the arm rest, fix those little directional issues he had going on with his lower half. And when he came back, he kind of felt like himself again. And when you look at the, the velocity chart, it, it kind of shows. 
So he's really encouraged about where he's at. Um, and I, I mean, look, he's got a, he's got a chance to bounce back and that could be one of those where the Brewers financial constraints come back and bite him. Yeah. And, and that's something where like in a normal year, like once he figured that out, he would have had four months of the regular season to, to be at his best. And instead this time he had three weeks. Yeah, he would. have, and, and more importantly, I think he would have had a month or so at wherever you want to put him, Biloxi, some kind of warm weather place to throw and pitch in a competitive situation. The alternative for the Brewers this year was, well, there was nothing. I mean, during the pandemic, the shutdown, he was on his own. Then you could have maybe sent him to Appleton to pitch. But but I mean, is that a competitive situation up there? They were throwing together camp right. games. So you, you need that. You, you need the umpire behind the plate. You, you need the couple of decks, especially for a max effort guy like that. Um, mm-hmm. a, a guy who thrives on that eighth, ninth inning buzz. Um, and he just didn't have it. And he did the best he could. Um, look, he's a hard worker. He takes the, the losses really hard. He apologized to us last night for the bad days. Because when you're in that closer's role, eighth inning role, there are some bad days. Uh, and it's not always fun when, when we're coming at him with recorders and cameras. And there were some, you know, there were some not great days in yeah. there. But, uh, but the guy worked really hard to get back. And, and the arm was electric. And um, what I, I, I'd have to look to see how old he is. But he's, he's young because he got to the big leagues young. Yeah, he's like 28, 29, I think. Uh, he's still got a chance to be very good. Yeah, I think a lot of fans were kind of shocked by this. Um, Knable was, you know, liked by a lot of the fans. He did a lot of good things for the community. You know, his um, family family was popular. So I think a lot of fans' initial reaction was to be, you know, sad that he's leaving. We all wanted to see him, if he did stay with the team, do well and bounce back. We were all hoping to see that. But now that he's gone, a lot of fans, you know, on Twitter anyway, they're uh, mindset now shifts to, well, what's the return? Um, obviously, we don't know what that's going to be. It's still super early. But do you do you have any sense of, you know, what the Brewers might potentially see um, coming back in that trade? Yeah, look, and I don't know. And, um, you know, you, you guys know David Stearns plays it so tight and it's such a mm-hmm. small group. Things just do not leak out of this front office. It's very irritating. I've tried to talk him into <laughs> stop doing that. Um, so I don't know, but you know, we were joking before guy, it's not going to be Gavin Lux. Um, you know, it's not going to be a dude. It's going to be a lower level player or potentially it's going to be cash. Um, you know, this is just a deal where you were going to non-tender a guy and, and get literally nothing. And it's a chance to get something in the deal. And look, from the Brewers point of view, you hope it doesn't come back to bite you because as you guys said, Twitter you know, Twitter's already determined that they're, you know, if they play 162 games, the, the Brewers are unfortunately going to go 40 and 120 next year. <laughs> um, but I mean, they, they're going to try to make the playoffs again. And, and if you make the playoffs, you figure you got to go through L.A. So it's it, there's some danger in that, too. The, the other part of this, guys, is is it's also um, it signals what they think about the other guys that they have in the pen. And that's one of the good things that happened in 2020 was they identified some some players that were not that high on the radar at the beginning, or at least if you think back to the 
you know, spring training, the first spring training, who now are sort of right in their plans. I, Justin Topit is the guy that jumps to my mind. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, there are guys in the front office, some of their uh, analysts, who absolutely love what they have in Justin Topa and think that is just the coolest example of um, empowering analysts to go out and find talent. And, you know, it's a little different world now where the, it's, it's the scouting versus data analysis is even, uh, you know, or maybe the data analysis is has it's definitely gone up. And this is an example of that data analysis really, um, you know, finding a guy. And I think it's it's those types of finds that also made a move like this more palatable. It, you know, they feel like they've got they, they like their pitching depth right now. Now, look, that's not going to make anyone feel good if Corey Knievel goes out and pitches 60 times and, mm-hmm. you know, strikes out <laughs> 12 per nine or whatever it is. Um, but they, they do think they have some arms to fill those spots. Yeah, and that's where, I mean, like you said, the emergence of Justin Topa. We had uh, Pitching Ninja on the podcast a couple weeks ago you yeah. know, talking to him because he was basically the one that kind of put Topa on the radar. His flat ground app, he tweeted yeah. out, Topa showing his, his uh, bullpen session, and then he gets signed by the Brewers a few days later. Uh, he kind of came out of, out of nowhere. Devin Williams went from just being kind of a middling prospect to rookie of the year. Uh, and you still have Josh Hader back there. You got Drew Rasmussen. So they have guys that, that can cover the, the final innings. They don't technically need Knebel. He's nice to have for sure, but they can cover the eighth and ninth innings or so without him because they still have you know, Topa and Rasmussen and Williams and Hader. And, but now when it comes to Hader, because Josh Hader has been kind of the big, you know, oh, will he get traded? Will he not get traded guy for a year or two now? What, what do you think that this could mean for Josh Hader's chances of being traded? Do, do you think it makes it less likely he gets traded? Do you think it has no impact on it at all? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm I'm just not sure the two are related because I still think Josh Hader as in everything is just his own story. Uh, he mm-hmm. is alone on an island in so many different ways. He is unique in the way he pitches. He is unique in the results he gets, literally the highest strikeout rate ever. Um, he is unique in the way he recovers. And then as a result, the way they use him, where it's these multi-inning stints, with ideally multiple days off in between, they just have found that that's how he does best. And, um, you know, he just doesn't, he does, he's not K-Rod pitching five days in a row. His body doesn't work like that. And I think then if you get into the, uh, the business side of things, he, he's again, kind of his own different animal because he's one of those guys where they, they, they'll be perfectly happy just going through arbitration with him year to year. He's earning every dollar of these salaries pay what, you know, go through the system. Last year, the Brewers won the arbitration case. Um, Pay what he needs to be paid on a year-to-year basis. And then if somebody blows you away with an offer, there you go. And I think it's going to take one of those kind of blow-you-away type of offers from somebody in order for the Brewers to make a deal, especially at this point where there's still um, control. But there's still three more years, like next year and then two after that. So, there's no rush to make a decision on him. But, you know, I think David Stearns probably doesn't mind the fact that we all talk about Josh Hader's tradeability and mm-hmm. that it's just a topic around the game because it's just maybe some GM will throw out some wild offer thinking that 
you know, arguably the best left-handed relief pitcher in baseball is the final piece that they need to win a World Series, and the Brewers can, you know, get something big out of it. So, I, you know, it's like I, I don't think they're in a hurry to deal them. They're definitely not closed off to it, but they're also not calling around trying to find offers. Yeah. Well, well, then let's oblige David Stearns. You know, I think it's going to take Gavin Lux and uh, Kybert Ruiz and all these guys to get yeah. Josh Hayner and just just try and see if the Dodgers or, or someone will, will put that up. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely something where it, it's not speculation that he's driving, because like you said, he keeps things really close to the vest. And like when it came to that Knable trade, I mean, normally like things like that, they get leaked out by someone. But for the Brewers, they never intentionally leak anything out, and I don't know how much that would have really helped them, even if they did. And the Dodgers, they certainly don't want it getting leaked out, because if word gets out that, hey, the Dodgers are trying to trade for Knable before he gets non-tendered, all of a sudden the Phillies are going to call and try to make a trade. The Angels are going to call and try to make a trade. The Mariners, like any team, is just going to come in and be like, hey, we'll offer you a player to be named later to to get Knable too. And the Dodgers were just looking at it, it's like, we don't want to compete with all these guys for Knable in the free agent market, so we'll just give you a lower-level minor leaguer, a player to be named later, and we'll just get the rights to Knable now. And, and it, it just worked out for him. The whole side of baseball, the um, you know when things do and do not leak out, is one of the most interesting little sidelights of the sport, I think, because... Yeah. You know, like Ken Rosenthal is the best. He's the right. gold standard of covering this sport. Um, he is as good and kind, and nice a person as he is a kick-ass reporter. Um, and the currency that he deals in is information. And the national guys are in a different category in sort of working that information. And they're told things that we, you know, a local guy just doesn't, isn't going to get. And I always love reading the rumors because somebody's got to have a reason for putting that out. Like mm-hmm. it's never that a reporter gets a tip about a trade that's about to happen because somebody is like just doing them a favor. Um, there's some motivation there. There's an art to it and different clubs obviously handle it very differently. David Stearns is totally content to do his work, talk to other teams and not talk to the Ken Rosenthal's of, of the world. Um, that is, yeah. That's just how he does it. It's a very, very small group. It's Matt Arnold, who obviously was just elevated to GM, who's kind of his, been his right-hand man from the beginning. It's Carl Muller, who's been in the front office for a really long time. He started as an intern with the Brewers. I remember, like, at the beginning of analytics, Ned Yost used to call these guys the whiz kids. One of them was Zach Manassian, who's now the pro scouting yeah. director of the Giants. And his brother is the GM of the Angels now. Um, uh, so Carl's been in the front office forever. There's a guy, Matt Klein, who handles a lot of arbitration matters for the Brewers and a lot of the details, the managing the contracts. So it's this really, really small group of front office guys that are involved in these conversations. And because of that, it stuff doesn't leak out. And I think David Stearns wants to keep it that way. So what you're saying is we have about as good a chance of finding out about any Josh Hader news un- before it happens as we do of finding out about the inner workings of the pitching lab. Well, probably, the, yeah, the pitching lab. I've been trying to get into that pitching lab. I think every time I see David Stearns, I ask if I can have a tour of the pitching lab. And he <laughs> tells me, no, I'd be fascinated to see what's in there. And it taunts us because you have to walk past the door to the pitching lab twice on the Ooh. way to the 
to the clubhouse. Once outside, when you walk into the building where we go into the clubhouse in spring training, and then once you're in, you go down this hallway and then you pass another entrance to the pitching lab, like from the other side. So they taunt us with it. And I'm mm. convinced that that's by design. Yeah. I, I think if he ever did end up giving you a tour of that pitching lab, you might not live to tell yeah. the tale about it. <laughs> I would not, I would not emerge. Kurt Hogue or somebody would end up covering the Brewers <laughs> because I would be, or one of you guys would end up with the keys to brewers.com. That would be the end of me. Yeah. So is, is it really worth the risk to find out what's in there? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm really curious. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Corbin Burns, the Corbin Burns story makes it worthwhile. Yeah. Corbin Burns, my favorite guy. Let's talk about Corbin Burns for a second. So sixth place in, in the Cy Young finite or in the Cy Young voting. Uh, he came off a horrible year in, in 2019, the year that I predicted he would win the Cy Young. That did not work out. But I mean, this year he comes back and He's basically everything that that he was advertised when he was coming up through the minors, everything that he was in 2018 as a starter now. And, you know, that pitching lab that they came up with the cutter or something evidently in there and they reworked his pitch mix. And I mean, he came out this year and it was it was incredible to see. Okay, so many things with Corbin Burns. You could write a whole book about about this guy. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's here's the main thing, I think. I love Twitter. I love the interest in baseball. I love that everybody has hot and cold takes and nothing in between. (laughs) (laughs) But pitching, like Corbin Burns is the ultimate example. And we should always remember, me too, like before you hit send on a tweet, think about Corbin Burns. And sometimes it's worth like waiting a little bit to decide what, the answer is on whatever the topic is that you're talking about, because sometimes what you think at first glance is not what the answer is in the end. And he's just the all time example of that, that especially with pitching, it, it is so rare that a dude shows up in the big leagues and is Dontrell Willis or Fernando yeah. Valenzuela or, well, Teddy Higuera is a little different because he had the, you know, some experience in the Mexican league, but Teddy Higuera, where you just, a guy shows up and just dominates. That is, that is very rare. So much more often is that again, Ned, Ned Yost um, talks about Tom Glavin being just an absolute T as a rookie. And now he's in the hall of fame. So it, it is pitching is such a funny thing because it's obviously a lot about your ability to throw the baseball. But there's so many more layers to it, and it takes learning how to harness that. And it's not, you know, it's not high school or for Corbin Burns College at Little St. Mary's where you can just go out and dominate hitters. Um, in the big leagues, you have to pitch, and that can be really, that can take time and be and be slow and be, you know, annoying. And for some guys um, who come up with great promise, as Brewers fans well know, it doesn't turn out in the end. Like. There's promise and you're told be patient and then that patience doesn't pay off because that's just this is hard. So that's why I love the Corbin Burns story is because it's an example of, you know, when when you're told to be patient, uh, you know, an example of why that can can be important. Um, He had the highest ERA in the National League for anybody who pitched more than 40 innings last year. And Mm -hmm. now he's, you know, going into that last start, he could have won the ERA title. 
mm-hmm. and it's a bummer that he got hurt and, and got hit a little bit in that last game because mm-hmm. it tarnished some of those numbers a little bit and it kept him off the leaderboards by one out as as people were filling yeah. out their Cy Young ballot. Um, but still, it was it was quite a, a season. And now look, now the task for anybody who has a breakout, Devin Williams is like this. You got to back it up, and you got to back it up over the course of a full season. So that's going to be what is on his agenda for 2021. Um, so going back to last night, because I know David always has to get his Corbin Burns in whenever he can. <laughs> I, I got it. I got. I, mean, I am the leader of the Corbin Burns fan club, self-described. So you know, I, I got to. Um, I know there were a lot of kind of players who could have gone back and forth, tender, non-tender. Were there any, based off of kind of what you had the feeling going into yesterday, were there any real surprises with any of the results from yesterday to you? Um, I the the one was that all the catchers are back. I mm-hmm. guess I I was poised for there to be a non-tender of one of the catchers. I didn't think it would be Omar Narvaez because, you know, you make your analysis when you get him from Seattle that he's a good offensive player and he's got a track record as a good offensive player. And I don't think what happened in 2020 is going to change anyone's mind about that because you look at what happened to Christian Yelich and uh, yeah. Javi Baez, you know, great players had horrendous seasons, just like Yelich said some of them would. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I, I, I think I was convinced that Omar Narvaez was going to be part of this going forward, but I thought there was a chance Manny Pena was a non-tender um, given, given the cost and just given that, you know, they got Jacob Nottingham, who now is a very solid defensive catcher um, with no options remaining. Um, and now uh, Luke Maley, having just signed the day before, is another guy with a track record of a, a, as a good defender. I've actually heard he's a better hitter than he should than he gets credit for. He's, he's just been a backup in the big leagues, so it's really hard to analyze what, what any of those you – know, his, his offensive numbers certainly don't jump off the page, at least not in a good way. But um, I'm ter- told that, you know, he's one of those guys where there's there's still a camp with Maley that think if given an opportunity to play a lot, he could hit a little bit. Um, anyway, they have a lot of catchers right now. And, yeah. you know, it, it's it's again, I, I think the one thing that's worth remembering is that arbitration contracts, unless the contract itself is written otherwise, are non-guaranteed. So. Until a certain date in spring training, you can release a guy and only owe a sixth of his salary. And then at some point you owe like a quarter. And then it's not until you get to opening day that that salary is guaranteed. So even though Manny Pena's number is not $10 million or Narvaez for for that matter, um, there is some flexibility to, you know, deal with that depth later. And then again, you can always make trades in spring training too. And as you saw with Eric Kratz a couple of years ago, there can be, you know, you can you can deal a veteran catcher, a good defensive veteran catcher at the end of camp as teams are trying to fill some holes created by injury or, or whatever. So, you know, depth's not a bad thing. And, and none of these are like contracts that are going to prevent them from doing anything else. So I, I'll tell you, just because I mentioned his name, Jacob Nottingham remains a really puzzling, interesting player to me. If just given like a month to play every day, I'd be curious what you had there. He, his offensive numbers in the minor leagues are hard to read because there was so much focus with Charlie Green and everyone else becoming a better defensive catcher. And they've got this whole scoring system and they've got like the, um, 
the Statcast's kind of uh, measurements that they can take on catchers. And you know, he graded out really well and was focused so much on that. I wonder what that did to his hitting. So I, you know, again, we talk about so, so far that's been a bad trade, right? The Chris Davis trade has been a really bad trade. Maybe David Stern's mm-hmm. worst trade. But this is still a young player. He's got that like cockiness that you kind of like. Um, if given an opportunity to play, I guess I'm still curious what he could be. Yeah. And I mean, he got like a little bit of it at the end yeah. of this year after Pena got hurt, but he was still kind of splitting time with Narvaez towards the end. He was getting probably the majority of the playing time. And I mean, he had some good, he had a couple of big home runs, but he also struck out almost, you know, between like 35, 40% of the time. So he had struggles there still, but I mean, very strong defensively. And then, uh, like you said, the Luke Maley signing, um, I've I've got a theory as to like why like they brought him in and how this whole thing is going to work. So with Pena coming off knee surgery, you know, as an older catcher, um, I, I think the Brewers still want to see how he holds up and if he can kind of you know get back to to where he was before. And they needed they need someone that they can have on, on a big league contractor that they feel is, is big, big league ready to step in uh, as the backup if needed, but that can also be sent down to the minor leagues if Pena is uh, good to go to start the season or it takes a little while for, you know, his need to, um, you know, be there or to make sure that, that it can still hold up. So if it takes a little while and then if, if someone gets hurt, if Narvaez or, or Pena gets hurt, they have someone – down in the minors that they can call up because they can't put Nottingham back in the minors. They can't put Freitas back in the minors. Feliciano's not ready yet. So they needed someone. And that's where Maley comes in. Um, even though he's, he's on a major league deal, he has a minor league option remaining so they can stash him down there to see what happens with Pena, because I think there's still a little bit of uncertainty there. What do you, what do you think no, on that? I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think that's exactly. And the other thing is Omar Navias has options remaining. All of them. Oh, so let's not forget that. And and look, based on last year, I don't think he's going to go into next season with any guarantees. He's got to, you know, win the job. I still have him at the top of the depth chart, but but he's got to win it now. Um, Unlike last year, where it was kind of his job. So that that sort of roster flexibility, we've seen it with these David Stern's teams. They've set records. um, I think it was three years running going into 2020 for the most players used in the season in Brewers history. They love to, you know, shuffle guys back and forth to get fresh arms, get the matchups they want and all those other things. So you're right. The option was a a big deal in the Maley signing. And again, with Nottingham particular out of options, that that's going to be a, an interesting call at the end of camp uh, next year. If everybody is, is healthy and still on the team. Yeah. Oh, good. Sorry. Um, have you ever gotten the sense with Nottingham that they could potentially put him in the mix at first base? He had played a very small handful of games in 2019 at AAA at first. I know they played him there a little bit, maybe out of just necessity during the uh, summer camp games. Um, but, you, you know, you want some of your backups to be able to play multiple positions and being able to play catcher in first. Could that work out in his favor? Could they, you know, could that be a, you know, just small possibility of something to look out for? 
Yeah, I think more than small, I think that's a real possibility as things stand right now. I mean, there's a lot of offseason left, and the roster is going to look a lot different when they get to whenever spring training begins, which right now no one has any idea when that's going to be. Um, so it's all going to depend on what other moves happen. But I think right now, I mean, I've got right now a Vogelbach, Nottingham, Platoon at first base. I, I, I don't see what else you got unless you want to put Keston here or there, which was briefly talked about last season. And then we never actually got to see, and especially we never got to see because at least we're not on the road. We're not there. So you don't get to see what's happening in BP and how much time he actually spent over there giving it a shot. I, I think Nottingham could definitely play first. Then the question becomes the bat um, because, you know, they can have happened offensively what happened in 2020 and whether that was because offense was down all over the game and whether it was the weird layoff and all those other things, you know, there's a lot of reasons offense was down across the sport last year, but whatever it was, the Brewers cannot endure another season where they can't score runs. So, where do you look to add offense? Well, you probably think about first and third. That's traditionally been a spot where you can get a little slug and you can find guys to put the bat on the ball. So you'd have to be pretty convinced that Nottingham's going to hit to give him more than a fleeting here and there opportunity at first base. And I think that would be what would what would hold you back there. But I mean, as far as can he physically play the position, I think he's shown that definitely he can. Yeah, and uh, for first base, I mean, there's... You know, a couple more options on the free agent market now. Um, Same thing with third base. Uh, There's always, we've been talking about it for like four years now, there's always a chance that Ryan Braun could come back and play first base. Yeah. I've spent like, probably, I feel like a year of my career has been spent thinking and writing about Ryan Braun playing first base. And how many games has he, opening day in San Diego, I remember, uh, the G-Man Choi game where they went into the year with, what, four first basemen. Yeah. And Ryan Braun being one of them. And then that fizzled. And then it, you know, it comes up again each of the last couple of years and it never seems to actually happen. He doesn't love it. He'll do it, but he doesn't love it. Um, and if, you know, they talk to him about coming back and it's to play first base. Uh, I yeah. don't know that I see that being what entices him away from just becoming a full time dad. So, but. Uh, to me, now I haven't, you guys are probably dug way more into the non-tender list from yesterday, and I haven't had a chance to do that uh, yet. It's, it strikes me that there were a lot of outfielders, like a lot of pretty good outfielders yeah. that, that became free agents yesterday. And we always give a hard time because, again, social media, the answer is always, well, move the guy to first base. It's, it's easy, move the outfielder to first base. But I'm wondering whether, based on their scouting, there are guys on that new new free agents that are outfielders that we don't think of as first basemen that based on their reports they think can do it because there's some pretty good bats that became available yesterday and i think the brewers are probably gonna you know prioritize the bat over the glove as they look to acquire players this winter to try to get that offense going a little bit um so look like i said i i I don't know whether like david Dahl looks like a first baseman or Kyle Schwarber. I yeah, Schwarber. That, that, that's what I was thinking. You know, I mean, God, hey, David Stearns loves acquiring left-handed bats, right? How about Kyle Schwarber playing 81 games at Miller Park? That could be pretty fun. So um, I don't know anything about that yet. That's just something that's kind of on my mind. It seems to me like there are a lot of outfielders that are free agents, and maybe there's some opportunity 
to do something weird because we never know what the Brewers are going to do, but we do know it's going to be something you don't see coming and it's going to be something positionally that's weird, doesn't make sense on paper, and then you go into the season and they're giving it a shot. Yeah, and, and what you're saying there with, uh, you know, just moving on first base, it just reminds me of uh, the scene in Moneyball where Billy Beans at, at, his, uh, at, at the player's apartment, he's like, yeah, first base isn't that hard. Tell him, Wash, it's incredibly hard. All right, <laughs> thanks, Wash. <laughs> uh, Ron Washington, what a guy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and, and you look at some of these guys, and, and you, you look at, you know, Kyle Schwarber or, uh, maybe a Danny Santana or um, Rangel Ravello. Um, there, there were a couple of third basemen too, Michael Franco, Travis Shaw, uh, that, that were non-tendered, uh, that they could look there. But, yeah, and when it comes to these like corner outfielders, the Brewers already have $40-plus million tied up in three outfielders, in Yelich, Kane, and Braun. So if you're looking for someone, like if you're looking for an outfielder, there's really not a starting spot to give them at, at all. No, you mean Yelich, Kane, and Garcia. Oh, yeah, who did, who did I say? You said Old Habit, you said Braun. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah, Yelich, Kane, Braun. Yeah. No, I, no, I've I, been saying I, Braun for, for 13, 14 years now. You know, it's just, <laughs> can't help it. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, no, that, that I, I think you're right about that. They have, um, that's their strength right now is mm-hmm. probably that three-man outfield. Um, and we'll see what Avi Garcia is in year two. There were like good and bad. And, you know, again, you talk about a guy focusing on defense. He made that move to center field when Locaine opted not to play. And I, I give Garcia a lot of credit for, you know, the wear and tear. It's a big man running around center field and it's only 60 games and he's paid a lot of money to do it. So those caveats aside, but I mean, he kind of took one for the team there in order to do that. And, and I, you know, that was cool. I think put back and right, they're going to hope for an offensive bump from him next season. So, you know, as far as first base, I did a little follow-up that's on Brewers.com now, and I just, like, mm-hmm. randomly pulled three names that were non-tendered yesterday that kind of, to me, ran the gamut of, you know, Schwarber, who's going to be in high demand, and you mentioned Danny Santana, who probably mm-hmm. not is in high demand, but the three names that jumped out just jumped out to me were Macau Franco plays third base. To me, he's killed the Brewers. I don't know what the numbers say, but I feel like I've seen him get a dozen huge hits against the Brewers in a Phillies uniform. Danny Santana, switch hitter, plays everywhere. Center field, shortstop, corner infield, whatever you want. And, well, of course, Kyle Schwarber. But I doubt I'm the only scribe <laughs> who thinks Kyle Schwarber would fit on their team. But those are Jared Carabas said so yesterday. Yeah. I mean, he he does he does look like a Milwaukee guy a little bit. So oh yeah, it fits. Could you imagine Kyle Schwarber and Daniel Vogelbach as a as a tandem there at first yes. base? <laughs> that would be a pretty good left left platoon. Uh, that would be pretty fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, so when it comes to uh, the the non tender deadline and coming to those pretender deals uh, with Narvaez and, and Pena uh, and Orlando Arcia, these guys ended up taking pay cuts from their yearly salary from last year. Narvaez went from 2.725 down to two and a half million. Uh, Manny Pena went down from 1.85 down to 1.6 million. Orlando Arcia went from 2.2 million down to 2 million. 
So, I mean, these guys are were taking cuts. Nervais is at about 8% pay cut. RC is a 9% pay cut. Manny Pena is a 13.5% pay cut. And, you know, th- these guys are, are taking, you know, lesser deals rather than just trying to go through arbitration where they were projected to earn more. Well, I think it's more a choice between take a lesser deal or join that huge free agent pool. Right. Because the club has a way of making it clear in those situations. Uh, and Orlando Arcia yeah. has dealt with this two years in a row now where, um, you know, you're you're probably going to get a non-tender if if you don't sign this deal. And then the player has to weigh um, whether and the agent has to weigh whether, you know, which makes sense. And, you know, this is just a winner with so much uncertainty where the clubs were in a real power position in terms of convincing players to take that kind of deal because nobody uh, wanted to join that free agent pool when you don't even know, again, they don't know when they're reporting to spring training, uh, if there will be a season. I think there's great confidence the way things are going now that there will be a season if a vaccine starts getting delivered and, um, you know, the virus hopefully is contained a little bit by the time it's ready, you know, time to play baseball again. Um, so the teams were the teams were in a strong negotiating position here, and you know how much bad feelings were engendered during this. I I have no idea, um, but you know I I do I can empathize with a player like say Manny Pena, like Orlando Arcia. Um, free agency might not have been very kind to them based on other mm-hmm. guys that are available and just the number of players that are available. And the uncertainty going into yesterday about just how many non-tenders there were going to be. I think there was an expectation maybe that there were going to be more uh, than there than there even were. And I think maybe that's why there weren't more is that players were enticed to take these deals for a pay cut. So, oh, by the way, I want to throw in there about Franco. At Miller Park in 14 games, he's hit 354 and had an OPS of uh, 1.050. So right on the money with him. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's 14 I, games, so totally, it's a huge right. sample. Yeah. That means yeah. much, and I'm glad I, I had to look it up. Very, very significant but, sample size. Yeah, right. Yeah, but with, with Arcia, so, you know, let's say he does, um, he gets a little bit of motivation here with the, uh, the pay cut and the non-guaranteed contract, and, you know, he looks great in spring training again, and he wins out that job once again. Luis Urias. I know. I mean, where does that leave him? Obviously, he's still on the team. There's options for him, but it seems like fans uh, don't necessarily love the idea of him at third base. You want a traditional power hitter there. So if that happens, uh, what do you think happens to Urias to start the season? Well, yeah, and look, it's always about the puzzle, too, because if, if if you've got like a great power hitting shortstop and a great power hitting second baseman, or first baseman, and then you kind of look at the infield as a whole, maybe like, yeah, let's put a defense guy. And, and you know, Urias is going to hit. He, he's mm-hmm. going to be a good line drive hitter in the big leagues, but he's not maybe not going to be like a 35 homer guy next year. <laughs> so when you've got right now a huge question of first base, I would say you've got a question of just what Keston here is as a big league hitter at second base. And you've got Orlando Arcia being more of a defense guy at shortstop. It's harder to put a bat like Urias at third when you're trying to get the offense going. 
So I think if, you know, it's going to be question marks. And the, the idea going into last season was, um, you know, let uh, those two guys, Arcia and Urias, uh, compete for shortstop. And Orlando Arcia has always been a guy that's best when he's, you light a little fire under him. And, you know, yeah. I don't want to make it seem like I'm questioning a player's motivation because, look, he's in the big leagues and I sit up in the press box. So mm-hmm. what do I know? But <laughs> when Orlando Arcia wants to be good, he can be pretty good. And I think when you look at his postseason performance, that bears out a little bit. Down the stretch in 18, he was a great player for them, a really important hitter for them at that time. And... I think that was part of the idea with that trade was give him a little bit of competition and, and see what you've got. And if it means you've got kind of a surplus of shortstop, there are a lot worse things to have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one of the things where, you know, we're talking about catcher with the guys with the options. We're talking about these bullpen questions. We're talking about the infield. When, you, when I think a lot of fans think about the game, you, you want like, okay, who's the shortstop? Who's the third baseman? Who's the catcher? And you want like, your studs at, at as many positions as possible. I think when David Stearns thinks about it, it's much more about these moving pieces and it's like moving them around the diamond and moving them up and down in the minors to deal with injuries and things like that. Because he's thinking about things more about like, he's the guy who actually has to make these calls during an actual 162 game season where we're the ones who sit back and play it all on paper. And I think it's just a different way of kind of thinking about the game. So you know, if you've got two good shortstops, that's okay. Um, but look, you still need to have somebody to play every position. And right now they don't. And it's the rest of the offseason is going to be trying to fill some of those holes. So that's a really, really long way of saying, like, I don't know how shortstop is going to play out. I don't know where Luis Furious will end up. Eventually, he's going to be the rear of shortstop. But I don't know whether that's in 2021 or whether there's some utility year where he tries to get his back going or whether he does play some third base, that is all totally unknown right now. Yeah. And that's something where, you know, having a good actual battle in spring training could solve some of these issues because it was supposed to happen this year. Urias had the the hammock bone injury, missed spring training. As soon as he was ready to come back, they shut down spring training. And then when summer camp got started, he had COVID, so he wasn't able to start for the first couple of weeks. So there was never really a battle. Arcia was already a, a couple steps ahead of him the entire time. So there was really, you know, no way for him to jump up into that spot unless Arcia was really struggling by the time he was ready. So in 2021, it should be, as long as no one breaks a hammock bone again, it should be where they can have that full battle through all six weeks or whatever of spring training. And what, what you mentioned with Orlando Arcia and just kind of working best to to light a fire under him, and, and that's when he performs at his best. I think it's something that also kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier with Corey Knables. Like he's he's the kind of guy that shines brightest when the when the lights are brightest, when it's the big innings, when there's the energy in the crowd. That's when he performs at his best. Performing in in the sixth inning. In, in Appleton is not going to be the same as performing in, in the ninth inning. And it's just kind of that kind of mentality, that kind of atmosphere brings out the best in players. And sometimes you just have to have to create it and have to put them in, in those kinds of spots. Look, I, I think that's right. And I think the other thing is it reminds you that um, it's different for every guy. Some mm-hmm. guys, the really, really great ones, 
are as good in the sixth inning of an empty stadium in Appleton Mm -hmm. as they are in the ninth inning of game seven of the NLCS at Miller Park. And that is a, just a a skill that some guys have and others need more. I think Christian Yelich, for example, learned in 2020 that he's a guy who needs the crowd. Mm -hmm. Like he, and it's, it, it's, counterintuitive a little bit because he's this like super chill guy like yeah i'll pose nude in your magazine i don't care (laughs) um but here he's the guy who looked at least and i you know i think craig council mentioned this i think andy haynes alluded to this um that fed off that buzz that was non-existent this year and um you know you learn a little bit about that that each guy's different and again it's this little the little nuances of baseball where I think because there's the numbers and there's so much data now you, you, and, and, you know, you always say they're not robots. Like that's the, you know, everyone mm-hmm. says that, but I think sometimes the, the, you still slip in, people still slip into that mentality a little bit. Like these guys are, they're paid an insane amount of money to play a game and they should do it the best they possibly can every single time they step on the field. And that's how it, you know, that's what that theoretically how it should be. In reality, everybody's just a little bit different, and some guys get their motivation from different places. So, look, I just again, I I think about Orlando Arcia late in seasons and in the postseason, and he seems like a guy who's really good when he's highly, highly motivated, and he should be highly, highly motivated right now because he's got competition. Um, he's got now two straight years where he's, uh, you know, sort of on the verge of maybe being cut loose. He's coming up on the end of those arbitration seasons and true free agency. So he's got a lot of things going for him in terms of getting that fire lit. And he's a very talented player. And, and I, again, I, I just feel like the consensus is there's more there with the bat, certainly, but even with the glove, like they feel like there's, he was better this year than the year before, but they still feel like there's another level there defensively that they're not yet seeing in the major leagues. And franchise leader in postseason home runs, let's not forget. That's the weirdest step, isn't it? <laughs> right? I, I still don't get how Ryan Braun is not like in like the top four there. He's playing the most postseasons of any of them, and, he, and he's not up there. Yeah. I, what are Ryan? Are you looking at numbers now? What are Ryan Braun's postseason numbers? I Honestly, I don't even necessarily. He's gotten some hits. Yeah, he might have like two home runs or, or something in the postseason, but because when best, they showed the leaderboard, it has three. But he does his best work in the final week of the regular season. Right. Yes. Yeah. Get, and then he sort of sits back and lets you know Mike Mustakas and Orlando Arcia do the hitting in the postseason. He's got two. Two. Two career. They're both in 2011. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So. Um, when it comes to the circling back now to the non-tenders and the decisions that they made, and we're talking about you know forcing guys to to take deal, guys like Arcia to to take deals or be non-tendered, uh, those kind of threats are going to fall on deaf ears for Josh Hader and Brandon Woodruff because uh, <laughs> it's going to be all right. You're going to non-tender me, bet I, I dare you to try to to threaten me with a non-tender if I don't take this deal. Yeah. So they both en- ended up just being tendered and, and they're going to go through the arbitration process until they either settle at some point or end up with a hearing uh, in in February. So, I mean, those two guys we talked about before Josh Hader possibly being a trade candidate. Brandon Woodruff, 
possibly an extension candidate, I would say. I don't know if they would look at that right now. But, I mean, when it comes to spring training, the Brewers did a couple of extensions last spring training with Yelich and with Freddie Peralta. Do you think an extension is something that the Brewers might approach with Brandon Woodruff in spring? Absolutely. And and it's, um, you know, he's going to have four arbitration years because he's a super two this year. Mm-hmm. So you can do some things with um, a, a long-term deal, maybe buy out a year of free agency, get yourself cost certainty. He's a prime candidate for something like that. And and part of it is that you can kind of, you know, you look at him and you know him a little bit and he's a guy that you can build around a pitcher like that. I don't know. I mean, hope the Brewers hope he develops into like a true number one to do that. I think mm-hmm. you have to do it year after year and dominate. Um, but he's certainly a top half of the rotation arm and has proven good enough to uh, to warrant those talks. I think, you know, David, you said it like, do you sign an extension in this environment? I, uh-huh. I don't, it's, mm-hmm. It may be hard because just nobody knows what the world. Ryan Braun has this phrase where he's like, before he decides whether to come back, he needs to know what the world looks like. What, what does the world look like in 2021? Um, again, I think there's great optimism, but they probably would want to see a little bit more about what it actually is before you start making commitments like that. But, you know, I think he's definitely a candidate and another example of patience a little bit. Um, you know, he was up and down at the, at the start and then played a prominent relief role and got his feet under him that way. It's a homer off Clayton Kershaw. I think people forget he didn't start that game. That he homered off oh, yeah. Kershaw. He came in in relief in that game. So, you know, it, it's another example of a guy who takes kind of a up and down path, but then gets to a pretty good place. And I think where you could tell that he was in a good place in 2020 was how mad he was early in the year with how he was pitching. And then you kind of sit back and look at the numbers. And I asked uh, Mike Petriello and Sarah Langs our who knows so much more than me about the numbers to look like somewhere at mid season when Woodruff was just, there was, I think a game against the twins, maybe that series where they almost got no hit against Maeda, but -hmm. I think there was a game, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, there was a game in that time where he was just so mad at himself for coming out early. He he kept hitting that fifth inning roadblock um, and was just not getting the job. He Petriello and Sarah looked at the numbers and they were like, you know, this is the same guy as a lot of the advanced numbers and data was showing that he was pitching just as well. He just wasn't getting the results. He wasn't getting deep into games. They had these expanded pitching staff. So they were making these earlier calls with the pen. Um, And the fact he was so mad about that, but still pitching like, okay, shows you that he's a good pitcher Um, because he believes that there's another level and I think, you know, he started to pitch at that level as, as the season went on. So then now we have Hayter as well in arbitration. And I remember last offseason, it got a little bit messy um, with, you know, what he thought he was worth. And a lot of the, uh, I think, talk around that revolved around saves numbers, because that's kind of yeah. one of the new standards. Well, now Hayter was the NL saves leader this year. So, I mean, how do we see that going can, can we can we hope that that'll be a, a little bit uh, uh easier of a conversation this year that's actually an interesting point and i had noticed that yesterday when i was looking at his numbers but i hadn't thought about it in that context so now the teams 
reasoning is probably going to be, well, it's a 60 game season. How do you measure that? There's no, there's right. no comp for that. The, you know, the team is always going to work within, and the players rep will do this too. You work within the confines of the system to come up with best deal for yourself. <laughs> um, and you know, that's what happens to the zero to three year players where they, they are, they get paid, but the team wants to pay them. Mm-hmm. That's the weirdest thing about baseball to me. Um, and there was consternation within haters basically at CAA about the way the Brewers constructed their arbitration case against him based on saves. But I don't know that Hader himself was mad about that. Mm-hmm. I know that there was a lot of chatter about that, that he was going to go into this season unhappy. I, the, I mean, I can't claim to know everything about him, but the, what I do know of him, I do not think that is remotely near Josh Hader's mind when he runs into the pitch in a game. So yeah. I think that's more an issue between, you know, Matt Klein and David Stearns in the front office and um, Hader's guys at CAA than it is between the Brewers and Hader necessarily. Right. So, yeah, I, but look, that's an interesting case. And, and you know that since the Brewers made that, the, their argument based a lot on the saves number last year, you know that Hader's people, you, you can write their case for them now because they're going to come in there and, and start arguing the saves number and, in fact, he put up another big year. Yeah, and I think Hader might have been more mad at the actual system than, than he was at the Brewers. Because the I mean, sure. Brewers played the system right. The system just rewards saves extremely heavily. And because he had the, the few years where he wasn't the closer, he was working seventh, eighth innings. You know, he's he's more mad at the system, not recognizing, hey, I've got two NL reliever of the year awards. What gives? Yeah, and look, the system is based on an antiquated notion of value. It's saves, it's home runs, um, mm-hmm. you know, strikeout totals. It's, it's wins not, for pitchers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is not based on the reality of the way the game is played today, including the fact that teams everywhere, including the world champions, who really the Dodgers were kind of at the forefront of this. Um, again, the idea that you have a third baseman a second baseman is, is somewhat antiquated because there's platoons everywhere. And that's the way teams are building themselves now to win every platoon advantage within a game you can. And they do that by moving guys all over the diamond. And it results in guys being really, really great players, but not having those huge numbers that used to reward you in arbitration. Um, and that's a tricky thing for the players and surely will be part of this next uh, collective bargaining conversation, which is going to be a real peach. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going great. They can't even figure out right now if there's going to be a designated hitter in the national league next year. Can can you believe that we're, we've approached the non-tender deadline. We're into December now and no one has any clue if the designated hitter is going to be in the national league. Yes, I can believe that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it is not good. It's not good. Yeah. It's not good for teams. It's not good for the players. It's not good. And, you know, again, with the Vogelbach thing, bringing him back, it's it's covering yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, it's worth noting, again, unless his deal is guaranteed, which I could not. It's, it's not guaranteed. Night. Yeah. It, it's you can, you know, you, you're risking a sixth of that 1.4. Um to cover yourself in the event that there is a DH. I don't think they're going to play him 
regularly at first base. Although he looked good when he was out there. He looked fine. He had that one game where the ball kept yeah. finding him, and he made some pretty athletic plays. But I don't think that the idea is to go into a season with him playing a lot of first base. I think he's going to be the DH. And, and that, that whole issue of guaranteed contracts could very much come into play there. Do you think there will be a DH next year? Um, that is a really good question. I, I would say if you polled baseball people, the answer is yes. I'm going to okay. go, I'm going to go no and oh. say they punt that until this larger CBA, because remember this is the last year mm-hmm. and then they need to come up with a collective bargaining agreement. So I'll say no for now. And they fold it into the, uh, the next deal i'm probably gonna be wrong about that though <laughs> i'm not sure of the answer at all that's yeah, fine we've I, all I been wrong about things from time it. to I mean, time well and part of it is like look we're all going through this election stuff right and it's been so i don't know I, I, we're not going to talk politics here but i will say that <laughs> the thing that i find fascinating and hilarious and scary is how people who are smart good people can look at the same set of facts and have the totally have totally different answers. Mm-hmm. And um, the DH is a little like that to me. Maybe I'm seeing what I want to see here. I don't love it. I like pitchers hitting, and I know I'm in a very small minority, and I'm risking drifting into get-off-my-lawn-old-man territory. <laughs> but I think the strategy of it is kind of cool. Um, I think that so much of baseball right now is about pace, um and adding another you know killer hitter in there is not moving the pace along i don't know i i know i'm in a minority um i've just always kind of liked the strategy of the national league game and i probably need to just get over that and accept that it's there's going to be a dh whether it's in 2021 or definitely in 2022 there's going to be a dh yeah absolutely i i think that's a it's a good Good place to end off for for this week's episode, Matt. You got anything you wanted to wanted to say? I actually just wanted to throw a quick plug and ask a question. Adam posted this morning um, about a bundle at Broken Bat Brewery um, where you can get his Brewers at fifty, um, and then a fifteen percent off code. If I were to go and do that, um, what beer am I bundling with that Ooh. book? What is your suggestion? Ooh. And I've got my notes right here. Well, I'm a, I'm sort of a hop head. Um, so I, I, they have some good hobby beers. I like the straight Ched, which is like an apricot IPA, but it's not okay. sweet. It just has the little, little essence. And, uh, that's, that's one I really like. Boy, I'm sure glad you brought up the book. I didn't even have to like bribe you guys to do that. I was going <laughs> to ask you whether you have your holiday shopping done yet. I don't not, have mine not done my yet. shopping for myself. So I had to ask. Well, yes, the book is available. Those guys are broken bat for, for people in Milwaukee. Now, that's the, the catch of this is to get the book and beer, you need to actually go pick it up. Yes. I think they'll ship you the book. They can't ship the beer. Right. Um, but uh, those guys have been so supportive and so awesome. We're actually talking about maybe doing a signing right before Christmas, mm-hmm. like throw the door open and do a, a bundle up sidewalk signing to do it in a safe way. So that's something to stay tuned for. But there's, you know, uh, the book's been really fun. It's been like the silver lining of 2020. I would have loved to like be able to do events and actually meet everybody and sign it properly and 
um, you know, we couldn't really do that, but it's been a silver lining just to hear people's reactions and, um, you know, think back on some memories of favorite players. And I'll tell you, our conversation today, we did not talk much about Yelich. We did not talk much about Lorenzo Cain. There's more to baseball than like Mike Trout's of the world. Like uh, Mm -hmm. the good baseball teams are made up of good players at all over the diamond. And you never know when Niger Morgan is going to come up and get like the biggest hit in a generation (laughs) for your team. And doing the book was like the coolest reminder of that because there's obviously like all the star players are in there, but there's also like, you know, Bob McClure is in there and, um, well, BJ Suroff was pretty good, but Jeff D'Amico. Jeff D'Amico is, is he in there though? Bob Wickman's in there. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's, and I think it's cool that, um, I've, I've learned in talking to people about the book that, you know, there, people love Yountain Molitor, but they also love, you know, Fernando Vina. And John Jaha. John Jaha, yeah, and that's the, yeah. that's kind of a, I think a cool thing about baseball, and it's it's been um it's been driven home by the by doing the book is that um you know it takes more than those star players to build a good team. So I hope it's something people like. Yeah, and when you say do a signing properly, I, I've heard your signature is is kind of just <laughs> a little bit of a mess. <laughs> Let's see, I, I I'm I'm the, the podcast's not going to be video, is it? No, no. I don't have a signing anyway. We're on video for people listening. We're looking at each other right now. Yeah. But I don't have my uh, signature. But yeah, it's terrible. And we have a group <laughs> text with some of the MLB.com guys where we just sort of like complain about stuff and laugh and Here we are. make fun of each other. Yeah, there it is. Somebody <laughs> said today, they said, why did so- why did a woman named Amy sign that book? <laughs> when you see my my scribble of an autograph, that's uh, that's. Yeah, but I did go into Miller Park the other day. I actually left the house and I signed every book that they have at Miller Park. So if people want want this terrible autograph, every copy I think at the team store is signed. I was at Boswell Books in Milwaukee this morning signing. Broken Bat has signed copies, and I'm going to make a uh, Barnes and Noble circuit tomorrow to Ooh. sign a bunch. So nice. people can. I don't know if this adds or detracts from the value of this. <laughs> But it's an easy Christmas gift and a stocking stuffer if you have a really, really big stocking. Yes. Absolutely. I've heard that uh, it's a weighty book. Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy. It's good. It's uh, If anyone got the Packers, the Packers did a 100th anniversary book, mm-hmm. which is also really cool and a good gift idea. Same publisher, same, you know, you hold the books side by side, they're the same. So it's a nice, heavy, it's a big, heavy brick. Great paperweight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It works. Swim with it next summer. (laughs) It's straight to the bottom. Just trying to give you reasons to buy the thing. (laughs) Hey, it works. It was written by you. That's reason enough, right? Yeah. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Adam McAlvey, thank you so much for for joining us on this week's episode of the the Colbert Podcast. We really enjoyed having you on. Well, it's fun to, like, actually see each other and talk instead of just tweeting at each other like we've done for the last how many years? Yeah. You finally put a, a face to the guy who's putting up the weird attempt to be funny tweets all the time. <laughs> Wait, you're talking about me. I'll, I'll talk about myself. Oh, okay. oh, but, oh, yeah. But, I mean, you, you've got the jokes in there, too. 
John Heyman yesterday told me I was funny. So he, he told both of us after his thing, Chris Bryant will be tendered tonight. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's breaking it. And uh, fun fact about John Heyman, his wife is a cheeser. Really? Wisconsin girl, yes. Wow. That is, I always I, felt like he was a little partial to the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's, you know, we're that's awesome. Yeah, Wisconsin people everywhere. Yeah, for sure. Going all over the place. Just so that everyone can just hear, oh, let me just sneak right past you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Adam, thanks again uh, so yep. much for, for coming on this week. Um, winter meetings coming up soon. So we're going to have uh, a lot to talk about next week and a couple weeks going forward. A lot of offseason left to go for the Brewers. Over Adam McAlvey for Matt Carroll. I'm Dave Gasper. We'll see you next week on the Cold Brew Podcast.